Chapter 11 of More Celtic Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording by Megan Thomas. More Celtic Fairy Tales by Joseph Jacobs. Chapter 11 The Greek Princess and the Young Gardener. There was once a king but I didn't hear what country he was over, and he had one very beautiful daughter. Well, he was getting old and sickly, and the doctors found out that the finest medicine in the world for him was the apples of a tree that grew in the orchard just under his window. So you may be sure he had the tree well-minded, and used to get the apples counted from the time they were the size of small marbles. One harvest, just as they were beginning to turn ripe, the king was awakened one night by the flapping of wings outside the orchard. And when he looked out, what did he see but a bird among the branches of his tree? Its feathers were so bright that they made a light all around them, and the minute it saw the king in his nightcap and nightshirt, it picked off an apple and flew away. Oh, botheration to that thief of a gardener, says the king. This is a nice way he's watching my precious fruit. He didn't sleep a wink the rest of the night, and as soon as anyone was stirring in the palace, he sent for the gardener and abused him for his neglect. Please, your majesty, says he, not another apple you shall lose. My three sons are the best shots at the bow and arrow in the kingdom, and they and myself will watch in turn every night. When the night came, the gardener's eldest son took his post in the garden, with his bowstrung and his arrow between his fingers, and watched and watched. But at the dead hour, the king, that was wide awake, heard the flapping of wings and ran to the window. There was the bright bird in the tree, and the boy fast asleep, sitting with his back to the wall and his bow on his lap. Rise, you lazy thief, says the king. There's the bird again. Botheration to her. Up jumped the poor fellow. But while he was fumbling with the arrow and the string, away was the bird with the nicest apple on the tree. Well, to be sure, how the king fumed and fretted, and how he abused the gardener and the boy, and what a twenty-four hours he spent till midnight came again. He had his eye this time on the second son of the gardener, but though he was up and lively enough when the clock began to strike twelve, it wasn't done with the last bang when he saw him stretched like one dead on the long grass, and saw the bright bird again, and heard the flap of her wings, and saw her carry away the third apple. The poor fellow woke with the roar the king let at him, and even was in time enough to let fly an arrow after the bird, he did not hit her, you may depend. And though the king was mad enough, he saw the poor fellows were under Pishog, and could not help it. Well, he had some hopes out of the youngest, for he was a brave, active young fellow that had everybody's good word. There he was ready, and there was the king watching him and talking to him at the first stroke of twelve. At the last clang, the brightness coming before the bird lighted up the wall and the trees, and the rushing of the wings was heard as it flew into the branches. But at the same instant, the crack of the arrow on her side might be heard a quarter of a mile off. Down came the arrow and a large bright feather along with it, and away was the bird 
with a screech that was enough to break the drum of your ear. She hadn't time to carry off an apple, and Badad, when the feather was thrown up into the king's room, it was heavier than lead and turned out to be the finest beaten gold. Well, there was great much made about the youngest boy next day, and he watched night after night for a week, but not a mite of a bird or bird's feather was to be seen, and then the king told him to go home and sleep. Everyone admired the beauty of the gold feather beyond anything, but the king was fairly bewitched. He was turning it round and round and rubbing it against his forehead and his nose the live long day, and at last he proclaimed that he'd give his daughter and half his kingdom to whoever would bring him the bird with the golden feathers, dead or alive. The gardener's eldest son had great conceit of himself, and away he went to look for the bird. In the afternoon he sat down under a tree to rest himself, and eat a bit of bread and cold meat that he had in his wallet, when up comes as fine a looking fox as you'd see in the borough of Munfin. Musher, sir, says he, would you spare a bit of that meat to a poor body that's hungry? Well, says the other, you must have the devil's own assurance, you common robber, to ask me such a question. Here's the answer. And he let fly at the Modharine Ruer. The arrow scraped from his side, up over his back, as if he was made of hammered iron, and stuck in a tree a couple of perches off. Foul play, says the fox, but I respect your young brother, and will give a bit of advice. At nightfall, you'll come into a village. One side of the street you'll see a large room lighted up, and filled with young men and women, dancing and drinking. The other side, you'll see a house with no light, only from the fire in the front room, and no one near it but a man and his wife and their child. Take a fool's advice and get lodging there. With that, he curled his tail over his crupper and trotted off. The boy found things as the fox said, but Beganese he chose the dancing and drinking, and there will leave him. In a week's time, when they got tired at home waiting for him, the second son said he'd try his fortune, and off he set. He was just as ill-natured and foolish as his brother, and the same thing happened to him. Well, when a week was over, away went the youngest of all, and as sure as the hearth money, he sat under the same tree and pulled out his bread and meat, and the same fox came up and saluted him. Well, the young fellow shared his dinner with the modern and he wasn't long beating about the bush, but told the other he knew all about his business. I'll help you, says he, if I find you're biddable. So just at nightfall, you'll come into a village. Goodbye till tomorrow. It was just as the fox said, but the boy took care not to go near dancer, drinker, fiddler or piper. He got welcome in the quiet house to supper and bed and was on his journey next morning before the sun was the height of the trees. He wasn't gone a quarter of a mile when he saw the fox coming out of a wood that was by the roadside. Good morrow, fox, says one. Good morrow, sir, says the other. Have you any notion how far you have to travel till you find the golden bird? Dickens a notion have I. How could I? Well, I have. She's in the king of Spain's palace, and that's a good two hundred miles off. 
Oh dear, we'll be a week going. No, we won't. Sit down on my tail and we'll soon make the road short. Tail indeed, that'd be the droll saddle, my poor mudderin. Do as I tell you or I'll leave you to yourself. Well, rather than vex him, he sat down on the tail that was spread out, level like a wing, and away they went like thought. They overtook the wind that was before them, and the wind that came after didn't overtake them. In the afternoon, they stopped in a wood near the King of Spain's palace, and there they stayed till nightfall. Now, says the fox, I'll go before you to make the minds of the guards easy, and you'll have nothing to do but go from lighted hall to another lighted hall till you find the golden bird in the last. If you have a head on you, you'll bring himself and his cage outside the door, and no one then can lay hands on him or you. If you haven't a head, I can't help you, nor no one else. So he went over to the gates. In a quarter of an hour, the boy followed, and in the first hall he passed, he saw a score of armed guards standing upright, but all dead asleep. In the next, he saw a dozen, and in the next, half a dozen, and in the next three, and in the room beyond that, there was no guard at all, nor lamp, nor candle, but it was as bright as day, for there was the golden bird in a common wood and wire cage, and on the table there were three apples turned into solid gold. On the same table was the most lovely golden cage I ever beheld, and it entered the boy's head that it would be a thousand pities not to put the precious bird into it. The common cage was so unfit for her. Maybe he thought of the money it was worth. Anyhow, he made the exchange, and he had soon good reason to be sorry for it. The instant the shoulder of the bird's wing touched the golden wires, he let such a squawk out of him as was enough to break all the panes of glass in the windows, and at the same minute the three men and the half-dozen and the dozen and the score men woke up and clattered their swords and spears and surrounded the poor boy and jived and cursed and swore at home till he didn't know whether it's his foot or head he was standing on. They called the king and told him what happened, and he put on a very grim face. It's on a gibbet you ought to be this moment, says he, but I'll give you a chance of your life, and of the golden bird too. I lay you under prohibitions and restrictions and death and destruction to go and bring me the king of Morocco's bay filly that outruns the wind and leaps over the walls of Castle Barnes. When you fetch her into the barn of this palace, you must get the golden bird and liberty to go where you please. Out passed the boy, very downhearted, but as he went along, who should come out of a break but the fox again? Ah, my friend, says he, I was right when I suspected you hadn't a head on you, but I won't rub your hair again the grain. Get on my tail again, and when we come to the king of Morocco's palace, we'll see what we can do. So away they went like thought. The wind that was before them, they would overtake. The wind that was behind them would not overtake them. Well, the nightfall came on them in a wood near the palace, and says the fox, I'll go and make things easy for you at the stables, and when you are leading out the filly, don't let her touch the door, nor doorposts, nor anything but the ground, and that with her hooves, and if you haven't a head on you once you are in the stable, you'll be worse off than before. 
So the boy delayed for a quarter of an hour, and then he went into the big barn of the palace. There were two rows of armed men reaching from the gate to the stable, and every man was in the depth of deep sleep, and through them went the boy till he got into the stable. There was the filly as handsome a beast as ever stretched leg, and there was one stable boy with a curry comb in his hand, and another with a bridle, and another with a sieve of oats, and another with an armful of hay, and all as if they were cut out of stone, the filly was the only live thing in the palace except himself. She had a common wood and leather saddle on her back, but a golden saddle, with the nicest work on it, was hung from the post, and he thought it was the greatest pity not to put it in place of the other. Well, I believe there were some push rogues over it for a saddle. Anyhow, he took off the other and put the gold one in its place. Out came a squeal from the filly's throat when she felt the strange article that might be heard from Tombrick to Bunolodi, and all as ready were the armed men and the stable boys to run and surround the Omadhan of a boy, and the King of Morocco was soon there along with the rest, with a face on him as black as the sole of your foot. After he stood enduring the abuse the poor boy got from everybody, for some time he says to him, You deserve high hanging for your impudence, but I'll give you a chance for your life, and the filly too. I allow on you all sorts of prohibitions and restrictions, and death and destruction, to go bring me Princess Golden Locks, the King of Greek's daughter. When you deliver her into my hand, you may have the daughter of the wind and welcome. Come in and take your supper and your rest, and be off at the flight of night. The poor boy was down in the mouth, you may suppose, and he was walking away the next morning, and very much ashamed when the fox looked up in his face after coming out of the wood. What a thing is, says he, not to have a head when a body wants it worst, and here we have a fine long journey before us to the king of Greek's palace. The worst look now, the same always. Here, get on my tail and we'll be making the road shorter. So he sat on the fox's tail, and swift as thought they went. The wind that was before them, they would overtake it. The wind that was behind them would not overtake them. And in the evening they were eating their bread and cold meat in the wood near the castle. Now, says the fox, when they were done, I'll go before you to make things easy. Follow me in a quarter of an hour. Don't let Princess Goldenlocks touch the jams of the doors with her hands, or hair, or clothes, and if you're asked any favour, mind how you answer. Once she's outside the door, no one can take her from you. Into the palace walked the boy at the proper time, and there were the score, and the dozen, and the half-dozen, and the three guards all standing up or leaning on their arms, and all dead asleep, and in the farthest room of all, was the Princess Goldenlocks, as lovely as Venus herself. She was asleep in one chair, and her father, the King of Greek, in another. He stood before her for ever so long, with the love sinking deeper into his heart every minute, till at last he went down on one knee and took her darling white hand in his hand and kissed it. When she opened her eyes, she was a little frightened, but I believe not very angry. For the boy, as I call him, was a fine, handsome young fellow, and all the respect and love that ever you could think of was in his face. She asked him what he wanted, and he stammered, 
and blushed and began his story six times before she understood it. And would you give me up for that ugly black king of Morocco, says she. I am obliged to do so, says he, by prohibitions, restrictions and death and destruction, but I'll have his life and free you or lose my own. If I can't get you for my wife, my days on the earth will be short. Well, says she, let me take leave of my father at any rate. Ah, I can't do that, says he, or they'd all waken and myself would be put to death or sent to some task worse than any I got yet. But she asked leave at any rate to kiss the old man that wouldn't waken him and then she'd go. How could he refuse her and his heart tied up in every curl of her hair? But bedad, the moment her lips touched her father's, he let her cry, and every one of the score, the dozen guards, woke up and clashed their arms and were going to make gibbets of the foolish boy. But the king ordered them to hold their hands till he incensed of what it was all about, and when he heard the boy's story, he gave him a chance for his life. There is, says he, a great heap of clay in front of the palace that won't let the sun shine on the walls in the middle of summer. Everyone that has ever worked at it found two shovelfuls added to it for every one they threw away. Remove it and I'll let my daughter go with you. If you're the man I suspect you to be, I think she'll be in no danger of being wife to that yellow mulot. Early next morning was the boy tackled to his work and for every shovelful he flung away, two came back on him and at last he could hardly get out of the heap that gathered around him. Well, the poor fellow scrambled out some way and sat down on a sod, and he'd have cried only for the shame of it. He began at it in ever so many places, and one was still worse than the other, and in the heel of the evening when he was sitting with his head between his hands, who should be standing before him but the fox? Well, my poor fellow, says he, you're low enough, go in, I won't say anything to add to your trouble. Take your supper and your rest, tomorrow will be a new day. How is the work going off? says the king when they were at supper. Faith, your majesty, says the poor boy, it's not going off, but coming on it is. I suppose you'll have the trouble of digging me out at sunset tomorrow and waking me. I hope not, says the princess with a smile on her kind face, and the boy was as happy as anything the rest of the evening. He was wakened up next morning with voices shouting and bugles blowing and drums beating and such a hullabaloo he had never heard in his life before. He ran out to see what was the matter, and there, where the heap of clay was the evening before, were soldiers and servants, and lords and ladies, dancing like mad for joy that it was gone. Ah, my poor fox, says he to himself, this is your work. Well, there was little delay about his return. The king was going to send a great retinue with the princess, and himself, but he wouldn't let him take the trouble. I have a friend, says he, that will bring us both to the King of Morocco's palace in a day. D fly away with him. There was great crying when she was parting from her father. Ah, says he, what a lonesome life I'll have now. Your poor brother in the power of that wicked witch and kept away from us and now you taken from me in my old age. Well, they were both walking on through the wood and he telling her how much he loved her. Out walked the fox from behind a brake, and in a short time, he and she were sitting on the brush and holding one another fast for fear of slipping off, and away they went like thought. 
the wind that was before them, they would overtake it. And in the evening, he and she were in the big barn of the king of Morocco's castle. Well, he says to the boy, you've done your duty well. Bring out the bay filly. I'd give the full barn of such fillies if I had them for this handsome princess. Get on your steed and here is a good purse of guineas for the road. Thank you, says he. I suppose you'll let me shake hands with the princess before I start. Yes, indeed, and welcome. Well, he was some little time about the handshaking, and before it was over, he had her fixed snug behind him, and while you could count to three, he and she and the filly were through all the guards and a hundred perches away. On they went, and next morning they were in the wood near the king of Spain's palace, and there was the fox before them. Leave your princess here with me says he, and go get the golden bird and the three apples. If you don't bring us back the filly along with the bird, I must carry you both home myself. Well, when the king of Spain saw the boy and the filly in the barn, he made the golden bird and the golden cage and the golden apples be brought out and handed to him, and was very thankful and very glad of his prize. But the boy could not part with the nice beast without petting it and rubbing it, and while no one was expecting such a thing, he was up on its back and through the guards and a hundred perches away, and he wasn't long till he came to where he left his princess and the fox. They hurried away till they were safe out of the king of Spain's land, and then they went on easier, and if I was to tell you all the loving things they said to one another, the story wouldn't be over till morning. When they were passing the village of the dance house, they found his two brothers begging and they brought them along. When they came to where the fox appeared first, he begged the young man to cut off his head and tail. He would not do it for him. He shivered at the very thought, but the eldest brother was ready enough. The head and tail vanished with the blows, and the body changed into the finest young man you could see. And who he was, but the princess's brother that was bewitched. Whatever joy they had before, they had twice as much now, and when they arrived at the palace, bonfires were set blazing, oxes roasting, and puncheons of wine put out in the lawn. The young prince of Greece was married to the king's daughter, and the prince's sister to the gardener's son. He and she went a shorter way back to her father's house, with many attendants, and the king was so glad of the golden bird and the golden apples, that he had sent a wagon full of gold and a wagon full of silver along with them. End of chapter 11